HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Hello, and welcome back to another great episode of Cutting the Curd. I'm your host today, Jessica Kesselman, and our guest today is Anne Mendelson, a writer, a journalist, and a culinary historian who's written for several magazines and has written books, including Stand Facing the Stove, the story of the women who gave America the joy of cooking, and Milk, the surprising story of milk through the ages. Her latest book is titled Spoiled, The Myth of Milk as Superfood, and she's here with us to talk about it. And welcome to Cutting the Curd. Great to be here. I have to admit, I don't really know where to start in summarizing this book. So I'm going to start with something you wrote in the introduction that really uh, resonated with me. Um, The quote is, the sheer vastness of today's drinking milk industry makes it difficult for consumers to understand much about milk itself. And I think your book goes on to explain in great detail what it is that consumers don't understand. Um, And I do want to be clear that we're talking about drinking milk, like the fluid milk that we drink that you know used to come in the glass bottles, now comes in cartons um, to drink on its own. Um, so what what is it that you think, for someone who hasn't read this book, what is it that consumers don't understand? I know that's a really big question, but if there were just a few things that you felt consumers really don't understand that you want them to Um, what would those things be? Well, one thing is that the stuff there in the carton, um, in the bottle, um, it is very very far from being a, quote, natural, um, 
un- monkeyed with product. It's been monkeyed with a lot uh, before it ever um, got into that carton or bottle. It is not milk in the state. It came from the cow. Um, it has been processed. It has been uh, put through hoops. Um, it has been centrifuged, um, separated, uh, recombined in different proportions. Um, even before it got, um, even before it left the cow and um, was on its way to the processing plant, it had been interfered with um, by manipulations of the cow's diet, um, by breeding programs that are supposed to make the cow give milk uh, of very large quantities in uh, proportions that will be the most profitable um, for people to handle and sell. Um, it is a highly manipulated product, and it has absolutely nothing to do with any image of a happy cow grazing in a meadow. I I think... Um... One of the things that also resonated for me in this book, being somebody who's worked in the cheese industry for almost two decades now, is how far back you've gone in uh, looking at drinking milk and really teasing out what all of those steps towards um, mystifying and processing the milk we get at the supermarket, how, how centuries and centuries of manipulation and very little of it. When I read your book, it was more about the people and the economies and the politics than it was about actually what was, uh, you know, putting the farm, the farmer, the land, the cow first. It was about so many other things, you know, some good, you know, some for the better and some not. And um, one of the things in, that also resonated for me in the introduction of the book was when you framed drinking milk in this kind of socio-political perspective historically that still perseveres today. And that frames a lot of this, the rest of the book. The fact that milk, which is highly perishable in its natural form and indigestible to many throughout the world... <laughs> was developed into usable, long-lasting fermented products, um, which are beneficial to our health and the environment. But this, you know, people put a lot, went through a lot of trouble to create an industry, to use your words, an industry with illogically preferential treatment of unfermented full lactose milk. And that and that this industry has become a, a revered institution. So now it's almost as if it's it's too big to fail, <laughs> right? Um, so, um, so you know, I, I just keep trying to think about like how did that happen? And I think we we do know how it happened. Um, but you know, you do also say that food has always been intricately linked with empire. Um, can you say a little bit about that perspective that you lay out in the beginning of the book that then we kind of see as the indus- the rise of the industry of, of drinking milk? I think it's hard to separate the 
the importance of milk today, this humongous importance that it acquired, um, from the fact that the industry came into being because of power relationships, um, among other things, the power of scientific research, the power of uh, one culture um, to present its scientific beliefs as superior to anybody else's uh, because it was a superior civilization. It was a wealthy and powerful civilization. And I'm talking about the British Empire. I'm talking about England um, and um, the nations it picked up. Um, in many ways, where the British Empire left off, uh, the United States. Um, these were advanced countries. Uh, I don't know whether to put advanced in uh, quotation marks. Um, already in the 18th century, um, developing ideas um, about science um, that were beyond anything um, previously dreamed up by the mind of uh, humans. Um, when it came to chemistry, when it came to physics, you can see that there were logical advances. When it came to medicine, the life sciences, when it came to nutrition, the picture is a little different. Um, because some pieces of knowledge uh, began to emerge much earlier than others, um, just um, piecemeal. And the experts, these advanced experts, um, tended to get carried away with what they thought they knew uh, without recognizing, recognizing its incompleteness. And because they belonged to um, a highly influential influential and wealthy civilization, uh, they were able to export their ideas to the rest of the world. Um, so the idea that milk has, drinking milk, has special powers, um, that it is superior to other fermented forms of milk, like um, yogurt or cheeses, um, this really stuck because the experts who were um, promoting the idea were part of um, leading intellectual waves uh, in a powerful empire-building civilization. I love, there's a section in the book where you're talking about, um, you're talking about that, that rapid, um, almost like a hamster wheel um, that farmers get got trapped in, um, where um, in the effort to start standardizing milk production, um, the, uh, the, um, the, I think, I believe it was the Alabama, it was the Alabama, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you want to say a little bit about, about what was happening at, in Alabama at the time, um, that really we started to see, um, you know, in the effort of standardization and safety that farmers, dairy farmers were suddenly being, um, put through, um, expectations and then requirements to upgrade facilities, to upgrade the way they were doing things. Um, 
and then the introduction of milk grades that um, that kind of we started to see the steering away from raw milk um, and started to see kind of where we are at now, where um, for the farmer, um, they become almost indebted um, in order to participate in the industry. What was happening in Alabama? What was that? Well, let me, um, before I get to Alabama, let me um, go back maybe to another thing that was happening, which was that milk is kind of intrinsically tied to the countryside. Mm-hmm. Um, or Anyhow, it's um, tied to places where you can have a lot of cows at once. Well, the market for milk, the consumership, um, was increasingly in the cities. And there were awful political brawls that developed between the city where the consumers were um, and the countryside where the farmers were uh, early in the 20th century. Uh, the cities were trying to impose standards um, of sanitation uh, on the milk. Uh, the farmers were saying, hey, you're not pushing us around. And state legislatures tended to go along with the farmers uh, more than the cities. Um, Well, the United States Public Health Service in the 1920s uh, decided we have this awful patchwork of um, regulations that have local that are locally enforced or or not enforced and farmers are quarreling. Um, Let's see if we can um, make a draft of a model regulation. um, The USPS, uh, the Public Health Service, did not have the jurisdiction to legislate uh, any kind of federal um, standards uh, for milk sanitation or uh, milk handling. Um, but it did have uh, the clout uh, to take one state um, and present a draft of a model regulation and see if they could persuade the state to adopt it. So Alabama was a great choice because in the Deep South, uh, the dairy industry was much less developed uh, than in the North. Um, the conditions were more difficult for cows. Uh, the, the warm weather um, was a severe strain on their health. Um, and in the deep south, you, you had uh, little farmers, um, not big farms. You had little individual farmers with a few cows um, who had not been formed in it, into any kind of lobby Um, the way dairy farmers were in the north. Um, So a representative from the Public Health Service uh, went to Alabama um, and uh, started going around towns, municipalities, um, saying we would like to propose a way um, of getting safe milk to people um, by standard regulations uh, for all dairy farmers and for all uh, plants that process milk. And the regulations would be things like you must not 
have uh, your milking parlor um, in the same room of where you actually, well, you, you can't have the milking tank, milk tank, um, in the same room where the milking is being done. You can't have the milking being done close to a dung heap. Um, you have to have lots of running water. Um, you have to have uh, the ability to sanitize equipment. Uh, which requires heat, which requires a boiler. Um, one requirement after another, after another, um, that meant the farmer would have to make an investment um, in both technology um, and just ways of using the farm labor um, in order to comply with this draft requirement. Well, um, Alabama was not very well organized um, to put up resistance, um, and the, um, the draft regulation had only been circulating for a matter of months when quite a few towns, uh, municipalities, um, had signed up for it. And within about a year, Alabama, the state, had signed up for it. And the public health service uh, kept going around trying to persuade other states, uh, look, um, this is going to be a, a benefit to all of us because consumers are going to have more faith in the quality of the product, uh, the safety of the product, um, and everybody stands to benefit in the long run. Uh, well, um, I think a lot of people did benefit in the long run, but they weren't necessarily the farmers. Mm -hmm. The um, and what and what time period are we talking about when this really took hold? Um, starting, I think the first Alabama effort was 1924. And then, um, what seems to happen then is just in maybe was it a need out of economics that um, does, I think you refer to it as the survival of the biggest, that to make mm -hmm. it more economical, one needed to get larger in scale. Yes, the so-called experts had been preaching this um, even before that, um, as early as uh, around World War One uh, or before World War One. Um, in the northern states, uh, they had been telling the dairy farmers um, a farm with five cows has labor costs per unit of milk harvested, you know, per quart or per gallon or whatever. Labor costs are going to be twice what they are for a farm with 50 cows. And get bigger, get bigger. That was the mantra um, from the beginning, um, even before the United States Public Health Service started circulating that um, draft regulation. Um, and the Great Depression partly cut into, into this trajectory. But after World War II, um, farmers 
really got serious about it, or the farmers who survived got serious about it. In maybe 1950, five years after the end of the war, um, a 50-cow farm was pretty big. A 100-cow farm was quite big. But the dairy, um, dairy science programs at um, universities, uh, the USDA and state um, dairy um, well, advice programs, and extension programs, offering advice to farmers. Um, they were saying, uh, look, if you want to really be serious about staying in business, um, you have to grow your herd, you have to expand, um, and you have to mechanize, um, and you have to breed your cows so that they give uh, you start with the bull whose daughters give more milk um, and breed those daughters to bulls whose daughters give even more milk. Um, and pretty soon uh, you have the cows kind of stretched to the, the physical limits of uh, how much a cow can lactate. Um, the cows were also being fed differently. Um, Letting them graze in a pasture was not economically viable uh, compared to feeding them carefully um, proportioned rations where you're measuring uh, that much hay. Um, if the cow was allowed to eat grass, it was only a certain proportion of grass, um, and the rest of it had to be Things like uh, ground-up soybeans uh, or corn that are not made for ruminants to digest. The cow is a ruminant. Um, ruminants can digest these things in small quantities, but it tends to make them sick. They're made to digest hay or grass. Well, um, if you supplement the hay and grass with more of these high-calorie, high-energy feeds. Um, you have the cows giving more milk. Um, you also have the cows tending to get sicker. Um, and the farmers, many of them have just been, been on this merry-go-round uh, for decades, trying to balance the welfare of the animals uh, against the ideal output uh, that's necessary um, to offset production costs. I think um, what is so interesting in the book, and I think a lot of our listeners, because you know the majority of them do work in the cheese industry, um, you know some of this is going to sound really familiar to them. But in the book, what's interesting to me is how you um, spell it out through time. So we, you, you really have like a timeline where you, you show, you know, and the, and the events happening in the world and how that influenced the market, which is what really a lot of this drinking milk, um, business was being dictated by. And what you're, what you were just describing, you know, was looking at pre 
world wars when um, we had more smaller mixed use farms versus the post-World War farms where as, um, as they were growing, more and more of what the animals needed in order to survive, the more of the food you needed to feed your herd was coming from further and further away. And then mm-hmm. what's so fascinating too is that then what they were eating was needing to be enriched and supplemented. So actually there were on the market, there were vitamin supplements for your cows because yep. <laughs> they couldn't get the nutrients they needed just from grazing. It's yeah, unbelievable um, to me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the bovine diet used to be, Adapted to the way cows metabolize their food, um, not sort of always a little bit at odds with the way cows metabolize their food. So you keep having to make adjustments, and you have to adjust the adjustments, and it's a never-ending merry-go-round. Another thing that your book gets into, you know... expanding on the role of scientific advancements and health studies um, and how those impacted dairy farming was also how the whims of a um, the whims of a, a health study could influence the entire market. So for instance, a study on uh, the link between cholesterol and whole milk, and suddenly everybody wants skim milk. And then we find out, well, nope, that's not, fat's not bad for you. So then we, you know, we see the reemergence of whole milk. But um, there's a passage in your book where you talk about even just being able to see the cream line on milk <laughs> and, and how homogenization kind of did away with that because of the perception of, you know, there's this, you know, yellow thing, like sitting on the top of a, of a, you know, look at the fat, um, on the milk. And, um, are there any, are there any of these advancements that in scientific advancements that you think did more damage than others to the way we view dairy? Well, I, I would point to homogenization. I think, um, I, I know that a lot of people believe raw milk uh, has all kinds of superior qualities, and I don't want to get into that argument. Um, but I believe uh, homogenization alters the basic structure of the milk in ways that pasteurization doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it makes the milk more anonymous looking because when all milk got to the consumer with a cream line. Uh, you, you could look at the milk. It was uh, usually coming to you in glass bottles. And you could see, gee, that looks uh, at the top. That cream is so rich and yellow looking. That must have come from a Guernsey cow herd. Mm-hmm. And if it was uh, very pale looking, well, probably Holstein or Ayrshire. Um, And these differences just got kind of wiped out by homogenization, which took hold just at the same time that glass bottles 
were um, being phased out and opaque cardboard uh, cartons were coming in. Uh, To some extent, um, also plastic jugs, but plastic jugs are not as transparent as glass. You don't expect to actually see the milk clearly uh, through the carton or the jug. So the visual clue was was vanishing. But besides that, when milk is unhomogenized, the way the fat globules um, behave, they have um, their they cluster by gravity at the top. That is, they are lighter than the skim milk. Uh, the, the water, the, the milk with the heavy water content, uh, that is uh, the skim milk, um, sinks to the bottom, uh, while the lighter, butterfat-rich milk uh, collects at the top. And the globules that surround uh, the each little dab of butterfat uh, are very intricate, they chemically very intricate. They are like uh, very complex membranes enclosing the globules of milk. And homogenization um, busts up all those membranes um, and reconfigures the milk into a homogeneous structure where there are no fat globules that are large enough to separate from the skim milk. It's all uh, mixed up together. But because the milk is almost uniformly, almost uh, uh, always centrifuged as soon as it comes into the plant, separated into the cream and the skim milk, You can recombine those elements in any way you see fit. You can recombine them to make what is called whole milk, which is usually uh, 3.25% butterfat. Now, a real cow does not usually give milk that is 3.25% buttermilk. Real cows, even Holsteins, um, give milk that's closer to 4% butterfat. And the flavor is, the flavor difference is perceptible. That may sound like, you know, just a few percentage points. It makes an enormous difference. Well, um, you can get away with selling 3.25% milk fat milk and calling it whole. Uh, and then um, for people who think that is too rich for them and um, they are going to drop dead of a heart attack, uh, you can recombine the skim and the cream. Uh, so you have 2% milk, 1% milk, one half percent milk. And so the consumers have this impression um, that they are in control of the amounts of a dangerous substance that they're taking in through their diet. We're going to pause here to get a word in from um, 
our sponsor. Um, there's so much in this book. We could go on and on, but we got to get our sponsor in here. So we're going to cut away just for a minute and we'll be right back with Ann Mendelson. Forever Cheese, a leading importer of cheese and specialty food, has sourced exceptional products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia for 25 years. Offering a wide selection of artisan cheese, charcuterie, nuts, crackers, preserves, and more, their products are sold in stores nationwide. Forever Cheese seeks out the best of the Mediterranean and focuses on sharing stories from their family of producers— Each product has a unique story, and their goal is to celebrate each one. From drunken goat to genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mostarda to Mitica Marcona almonds, and Duya to Jamon Iberico, Forever Cheese is proud to offer products they love from people they believe in. Their passion, quality, and range are unmatched. Learn more at forevercheese.com and look for their products in a grocery store, restaurant, or specialty food shop near you. And we're back at Cutting the Curd with our guest, Anne Mendelson, who's here to talk about her new book, Spoiled, The Myth of Milk as Superfood. So we've been talking a lot about, um, we've been kind of jumping all over the place, but there's so much in this book. Um, but I want to go back and and talk about something we started with, which was about um, almost like what colonialism and colonization did to promote this one um, item, drinking milk, over maybe the diets and the dairy traditions of of cultures and societies that were colonized. I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, you do talk about that, and um, and you know the idea again that these fermented foods, which were better for the digestive system and more easily digestible for many um, societies, uh, that, that suddenly this, um, dominant culture, uh, came in and, and brought this tradition of drinking milk. We know that lactose intolerance is a huge, a huge issue. Um, and for many, for many people around the world, um, and yet somehow drinking milk has become, you know, like, the dominant industry, at least here in the United States. Um, but we're starting to see some more of these fermented foods, traditional fermented foods that have, they haven't gone anywhere. They've always been there and and they're getting more attention now. And that goes back to what you were saying about the loudest voices kind of having the power to kind of put their scientific discoveries forward in the loudest voices. Um, we're seeing a resurgence back to knowledge that's always been there <laughs> um, about probiotics, the value of fermented foods, and the deliciousness of these fermented foods. Um, what you wrote a book um, about milk. It was partly a cookbook as well. Um, are there fermented foods that you are particularly drawn to and think need more? recognition? Well, I would say um, in this country, consumers are only um, barely, barely, barely beginning to understand yogurt. Yogurt isn't just one substance. Um, 
one uniform thing. It's, it can vary tremendously from um, culture that is um, civilization to civilization because the yogurt that we eat in this country is fermented by standardized organisms that are grown in laboratories and they are added to the milk in precise amounts uh, under precise conditions and the resulting product is pretty uniform um, because naturally the manufacturer wants to have something that consumers will recognize uh, from one purchase to another. But in reality, in the parts of the world where dairying originated, this is the, the Near East and, um, well, um, the Anatolian Plateau, uh, parts of what is now Iraq and Iran and on into Central Asia. The, the people uh, who lived in those regions, let's say 10,000 years BC, they could not digest lactose. Um, they were what would now be called lactose intolerance, intolerant. Um, but the climate was such, and the milking season was such, that the cows or goats or sheep, uh, buffaloes, whatever, um, came into season. Uh, they came into milk after giving birth in the spring season. Uh, and we're getting into their highest production in the summer months when the temperatures were maybe 110 degrees in the shade. Um, if you look at uh, the temperature in a place like Riyadh or um, Baghdad, uh, you, you'll see that those are countries, um, those are regions with very, very hot summers. The milk would go sour very quickly once it was drawn uh, from the animal um, into a bowl. Um, people adored sour milk. They um, only used sweet milk, sometimes a little bit as a transitional weaning food uh, for babies. Um, when they thought about milk products, they thought about what we would call yogurt. And the organisms that did the culturing, that did the fermenting, were not standardized. They were um, enormous communities of different lactic acid bacteria that operated in slightly different ways, each one communicating slightly different notes of flavor or aroma uh, to the whole thing. And I wish that in this country we could rediscover the fact that there are a zillion different ways of making what we call yogurt, um, sour milk, um, cultured by thermophilic organisms, meaning organisms that love warm temperatures like 110 degrees Fahrenheit, um, and operating together instead of 
just um, two or three or maybe a little handful more um, of standardized laboratory-grown organisms, you could have a really far more interesting and subtle and varied kinds of yogurt. And I have a sort of um, a yogurt campaign mentality. Uh, It's something that I want to preach about. I think I think you're preaching to the choir <laughs> on cutting the curd. We um, we've definitely noticed uh, just in terms of like talking with different guests over the last few years, there is more of an interest in using wild fermentation, um, more traditional um, fermentation methods. People are starting to really go back to, um, back to the roots, back to, um, more traditional methods of, um, making cheese and fresh cheeses, not just aged cheeses, but also, um, and looking, you know, a combination of science, but also, um, learning from people who are really sharing their knowledge from on an international, uh, stage, which is great. Um, I, I do um, want to ask you as well about, you know, I want to focus on some positive stuff um, because uh, a lot of what we talked about is about um, is a little, can get a little depressing, (laughs) Uh, but, you know, we've come a long way um, as more fermented dairy products are making their way onto supermarket shelves. And there's more recognition of, um, of the influences that are out there on the way we eat and what we eat. Um, and I think it's also interesting, and this is also from your book, um, that in 1950 per capita consumption of cheese was 7.7 pounds a year in the United States. And in 2020, it was 40.2 pounds. Is that, is that healthy? (laughs) Is that okay? Like that seems like a lot. Um, that's just the beginning. But is that, is that where, what does that, um, translate to you? Is it just an int- Is it just like an increase in the interest in cheese? Um, is it, a, do you think, is it recognizing the health benefits? Like, what do you think is, is driving that increase in consumption? Well, I think people are just, Realizing that they like cheese. People are not afraid of cheese the way, I mean, you used to hear people, women especially, who were conscious of um, their figures saying, now, one thing I want to cut out here is cheese. Right, yeah. The idea that cheese is fattening, it's rich, uh, it's going to... uh, clog your arteries, um, these, well, when, when we're talking about myths, those are myths. And the discovery that cheese really can be a delightful part of an ordinary person's diet, it just seemed to spring up in the 1960s and 70s and keep going. 
And I think that there, there were a few pioneer cheesemakers, um, but at the same time, I would point to another phenomenon, which is dairy farmers getting fed up uh, with having to navigate a very difficult and frustrating um, distribution system. They, um, you have to, in order to sell milk through the mainstream uh, marketing system, uh, you have to jump through hoops. You have to be at the um, mercy of forces beyond your control with no idea if you will be able to recoup your production costs. And although there are systems of um, uh, government price supports, uh, they don't do the job. If you are a small dairy farmer, you probably see the handwriting on the wall uh, for being able to stay in business and have the farm left to hand on to your kids. So there are more and more small farmers saying, why am I hitting myself over the head um, to do something that is basically counterproductive for me? Why should I not find some way to sell my milk directly to consumers or um, to a cheesemaker or a yogurt manufacturer who knows what good milk is and will reward my milk for quality. This is one of the most promising things that I see happening. More and more little dairy farmers trying to find a way to address markets outside the enormous mainstream market uh, of people who go to the supermarket and buy a quart of milk, a gallon more likely of milk. I think that that is a beautiful sentiment to end on um, because it comes back to cheese. I, I always tell people, you know, cheese has healing powers, not just you know, not just in the body, but in the spirit. <laughs> and, um, and I do also think, again, this, this um, recognition, this growing recognition that traditional fermented dairy products are not inferior to, to, you know, drinking milk, that there's actually many benefits that, you know, have always been there and are finally getting the attention they deserve. Um, I do wonder though, I, you know, I do want to ask you, um, what, what do you think, you know, what do you think is going to happen to the commercial dairy milk industry in the next, I don't know, the next couple of decades with, you know, not just the market forces, but also environmental forces, particularly water. Do you think um, that cheese is an answer on that larger scale as well, or um, or are we just going to see? Are they going to you know is the dairy commercial dairy industry just going to be battling for bigger pieces of the pie on the government level? Like what what do you kind of 
see as possibilities for the commercial dairy industry in the next couple of decades? Well, I think that two things can exist at once. I believe that there are going to be more and more dairy farmers who see a future in cheese making. And I I mean small or mid-sized dairy farmers. But at the same time, I cannot see the mainstream milk industry downsizing. Downsizing is just not an option when you've gotten to this level of... uh, Yeah, it's it's so embedded. It's it's like brontosauruses. And I believe that... You point to water as one uh, factor. I believe that there are several environmental factors that are going to that are going to, if not bring the industry down, at least plunge it into new crises. I think it's almost on the edge of unsustainability at the moment uh, with water pollution, air pollution, uh, unreasonable water, water demands that are depleting aquifers. The, it has to stop somewhere, but the picture is not going to be pretty. And I think there, there will be an awful lot of farmers, dairy farmers, caught up in a crisis that they cannot prevent. Well, so much for my idea of being able to end on a <laughs> positive note. I did that to us. That was my, that was my bad. Um, but I, but I do want to say that your book really does uh, really inspire a lot of conversation, a lot of thinking about where we're headed with the industrial drinking milk industry, which when we really think about it is at its core is about the land. It's about the animals. It's about the farmers, but there are so many forces that surround them that are pulling and pushing. And I, I really highly recommend this book also just from like a a social history perspective of, um, of, of how legislation came about, how the industry came about, and then there's all the science as well. I hope you had fun writing this. Did you have fun writing this? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, thank you so much for sharing it with all of us and for joining us on Cutting the Curd. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for joining us at Cutting the Curd. You can always visit us at heritageradionetwork.org. And you can find all of our archived uh, episodes and interviews and check them out. And we look forward to seeing you back here again at Cutting the Curd another time. Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.